My name is Nate, and I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church. And uh, if it's your first time here, so glad that you're here, and hope to get a chance to meet you uh, after service. Uh, this morning, I won't be preaching. Uh, we've got a guest speaker who I'll introduce in a moment. Uh, so you can go ahead and grab your phones, grab your Bibles, get ready to take some notes and allow God to speak into your life, believing that today is going to be another day when he, where he moves you forward. And uh, for some, it's going to be the day where you all of a sudden are, are considering him. For some of me, maybe the day where, where you weren't expecting it, but it's the day you give your life to him, make a decision to follow him. And for some... This is going to be a day of transformation where God does another thing in your life where he shows you his goodness and his kindness, and, um, and he makes you more like him. So it's going to be a good time. Our, uh, our guest speaker today is someone I met because we were in Bible college together a few years ago. And uh, after graduation, he and his wife were worship pastors and small group pastors in Florida, and I... Uh, one time when I was on vacation, I went and saw them lead worship there, and then uh, they relocated to Nashville, Tennessee, and for the last uh, few years, they've been writing books and writing music and, and recording music, and then traveling and serving local churches in the U.S. through preaching and through, uh, and through worship. So it was a great privilege for us to have them here today, if you noticed the RV in the back parking lot, that's because they drove that here from Tennessee, and, uh, and so we're going to give them a huge restoration welcome in just a minute, but we want you to get your shoulders kind of loose and, and so no one pulls a muscle, but we want to give them, give Jonathan a huge welcome as he comes, so will you, Restoration Church, please welcome Jonathan Cashman to the stage. Well, Good morning. As Pastor Nate said, we went to school together, uh, Bible college together, where uh, we, pay, we became uh, theologians. I don't know if you know that. Uh, your pastor is a theologian because uh, he went to Bible college. Um, yes, yeah, so we had uh, uh, quite a history to, uh, in, in Bible college where, uh, you know, this is a school of ministry where they teach you all things about the ministry, and then you get out there and you learn what the ministry actually <laughs> is. Uh, it's a lot of heavy lifting. Um, and I'm joined together this morning uh, with uh, a, a great uh, man of God and uh, real theologian, I should say, Dr. Andrew Sargent, uh, who uh, we, he and I write a lot together. But he was actually a professor of ours at Bible College. Uh, so it's uh, great to have you uh, with us today. And um, yeah, so you notice the, the table and the, and the bus and all that's because my wife and I, uh, we do this full time. We travel uh, full time and we've been doing this for about the last four years um, just going from church to church, we do in between uh, 100 to 150 ministry dates a year. So it's a whole lot of the church uh, that we get to see, and uh, we're really privileged uh, in order to do that. So it's great to be with you this morning. Um, I'm going to start out uh, by uh, commending uh, what a great church you guys have here. What a wonderful worship team. Like I said, we see a lot of the church, uh, a whole lot of the church. Uh, four years of doing road ministry, uh, pretty hardcore. You get to see a lot of ministries, and you got a, an amazing worship team, an amazing pastor, an amazing work that, that's going on here. And uh, I, don't, I don't think you should take that lightly because sometimes, you know, it's so easy to get used to your, your confines, right? You get used to, you know, things the way they are, and actually they can become uh, a little bit of an annoyance to you if you're getting too comfortable. But uh, this ministry is, is really doing some great things here in New Hampshire, where it really needs it. Uh, New Hampshire is a missionary state, uh, under 5% uh, Christians. So I want to talk to you today about discipleship, about making disciple-making disciples. That's a message that's been burdened on our hearts for some time. Uh, they sang that song this morning, uh, come over here, sit next to me. Come over here, sit next to me. I love that message because, yeah, there's something a little bit more in that. Because that's the voice of the church, or it ought to be the voice of the church. Come over here, sit next to me. That's the message of discipleship. The calling out people to come hang out with you, be with you. 90% of discipleship is being there for people. 
And that's what we're called to do, right, is to be the church that is discipling, looking out uh, for their brothers and sisters. And too often in this day and age, it's easy to say, go over there and sit over there. Go over there, sit over there, be in your own world. We like to keep our own worlds, you know, just the way we like it. So I love this message. I love this word. Um, and I'm going to, uh, if you got your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm uh, 91. And I want to read, uh, this is verses 9 through 12 to you, and uh, see how it relates to our message this morning. It says, uh, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And in this passage, this word angels is Malachave. Malachave. Am I saying that right, Andrew? He is a, yeah, he's a biblical scholar, and he has uh, master's degrees in biblical languages. So, yeah, no pressure. Uh, Malachave. Really, what that word means is messenger. Often we get uh, used to that word being angels um, as to be, you know, the, the, the glowing cherubs with the wings and the, you know, the swords and harps maybe. But really... That word isn't uh, an entity as much as it is a job description, right? Messenger, that's you, that's me. We carry a message that he will command his messengers, guard over you. Because you have made the most high your dwelling place, because you have chosen God to be your sanctuary, your safety, your safety net, your everything, your dwelling place, he will command his messengers, you, me, to guard over you, to lift you up by their hands so that you don't dash your foot against stone. Now, we know this verse because Satan kind of made it popular. This is a verse that he tempted Christ with. But really, there's a really awesome meaning in, in there for us that we're to be guardians of our brothers and sisters in the faith, watching over them, so that they don't stumble, right? That's the call on our lives. Um, when we put this book, we put a book together called Go, and I'm going to be speaking on this message today. Um, we sort of drew from our experiences, uh, Andrew, from his life, myself, from our experience making discipleship ministries happen in Orlando, and just from my own personal testimony, how I you know, experienced discipleship. I'm a product of personal discipleship. Um, people watched over me, for sure. Uh, when I gave my life to Christ, I wasn't always a Christian, uh, and my wife as well. And so when we put this together, uh, we, we started looking at the Church of America. And Christ, when looking at the people, he said, the harvest is plenty, the labor's a few. So here's the problem, right? It's not with the harvest. There's not a harvest problem. There's a labor problem. And if we want to see a great harvest, and we do, then our job is to raise laborers. Well, great. How do we do that? How do you do that? And really, the only way to do that is discipleship. Good old-fashioned discipleship. Um, Barna, the Barna Group um, is a group that uh, looks and does a whole lot of polls. And they look at the church every once uh, so often. And in 2014, they polled the Church of America and in our research, we kind of dug into this bit, and uh, there's some staggering numbers. This is the churchlessness of America, churchlessness of America. It says 49% of America, now Americans, it's, it consists of about 350 million people and growing, um, and 49% of that, about half of that, would be considered churched. So at least, uh, they go to church at least once a month. Probably most of you here are churched people. You're in that number. Congratulations. Um, on top of that is the minimally churched, 8%. Uh, this is what you'd call a CEO, uh, Christmas and Easter only. Uh, you go to church once in a blue moon, right? 8%. And then there's a line, and underneath that line is a 10% number. That's, the part, that's mainly unchurched. You know, don't want anything to do with church. Never been to church. Don't want to be a part of the church. 10%. So kind of a lone number. Now, really, we would normally look at that number and say, well, there's a harvest field, the unchurched. But really, I think the harvest exists in this de-churched. They've kind of tried it. 
kind of been there, done that, got the t-shirt, maybe pitched it. De-churched. These are those who have been involved in the church ministry in some way, shape, or form. There's another group out of Portland, Oregon that kind of delved into this number. And what they found was that these weren't the whiny curmudgeons. These weren't the ones that just kind of like came like, I don't like the music, I don't like the preaching, and they left. These are actually the people that were involved. They came early, they stayed late, they set up the chairs, they were involved with ministries, they were on the worship team, maybe even some pastors. The de-churched often are the ones that were actually most involved in the church, which is really bizarre. And what they found was that they've left the church for one of two reasons, either judgment or bureaucracy. Judgment being uh, inadvertent, which is kind of offhand. Uh, you, you just don't belong to the club. You kind of get it. You don't fit in. Uh, or advertent, which is kind of the finger in your face. You know, we don't like the way you dress. We don't like the way you smell. Judgment, right? And then bureaucracy would be basically... Um, it's, it becomes, uh, when the church becomes an organization or a business, or it feels like that at least, you just feel like a cog in the machine. Uh, you don't know where you are because it's just too big of an organization. Bureaucracy, it just means policy over people. And when you read these testimonies, and they pull like 20,000 of these folks, you start seeing patterns, and then you start ask, we start asking ourselves the question, where are their disciples? Where are the people in their lives that keep them connected to community? Where are the guardians in their lives that help them from dashing their foot against the stone? And I would venture to guess that the, the lion's share of that number is there because of a lack of discipleship, a lack of people in their lives that help them to stay connected, not to an organization, but to Christ and the body of Christ. So that's where I want to focus on today. I want to talk about the Great Commission. Commission that the famous last words of Jesus Christ to his church was this. Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. So that's our mission, right? That's our mission if we choose uh, to receive it. Um, so let's start with this. What is a disciple then? Let's just start with the basics. We would say a disciple is one who's continually being formed into the image of Christ. That's a good definition, right? One who's continually being formed into the image of Christ. Something, it's, a, it's not a process that's done. It's something that's ongoing. It's a continual process, right? We're continually being uh, formed to the image of Christ. Uh, we weren't discipled um, and been there, done that, got the diploma at Bible college, that's not where ministers are really made, you know? Because oftentimes we can get that mistaked. Mistaked. Is that a word? Yeah, sure it is now. We can get that wrong. We can think that the ministers are those who have degrees. The ministers are those who have gone to college. The ministers are those who are, have, have this vast understanding of the Bible. And I'm just, you know, I'm just, I just go to church. I'm just a person that, you know, I just need to receive all the time. And we've got that wrong. You know, this isn't a, uh, an organization, a business where the disciples are made by the pastors only. But you are the ministers and the pastors to equip the ministers for the work of the ministry. Right? But often we think, well, the minister or the pastor, he's like, you know, what the electrician would be or the, or the um, you know, the plumber would be. The plumber's plumb, the electricians, they wire things. And so ministers, they minister. That makes sense. But really, you are the ministers. You're the messengers. And he's commanded you into his harvest field to make disciples. So if that is your mission on your life, and it is, if you ever wondered what the purpose of your life was, there you go. I've just told you. I've just answered all your, your, your vast questions. It's to make disciple making disciples. It is. I can think of nothing greater to do with my life than to make a disciple who is going to duplicate himself into the life of somebody else. I can't think of anything greater to do with my life than to encourage the church to go and make disciples, to go and copy and paste themselves into other people because that goes beyond me. It goes beyond you. It goes beyond the, just your own circumference. 
Because if you raise one up who does the same thing and over and over, and you know what they say? If you raise up a disciple every three months, and that just continued, they did the same thing. Every disciple that they made, over in, in a little bit of eight years, the whole world would be saved. That's the power of that multiplication. That if every single disciple that you made, let's say just take it on a three-month basis, and they just did the same thing over and over again, eight years, the whole world would be saved. That's the power of this so when Jesus says go into all the world and make disciples, he wasn't, he wasn't fooling. He knew the power of that. He knew the power of that kind of multiplication. So a disciple is one who's being continually formed in the image of Christ. Uh, Jesus says this, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. So a disciple is one who loves. That's like your little, you know, your little badge. One who loves. That's a disciple. I love that's the first earmark of a disciple. The second is this. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, well, that's a little different, isn't it? This is talking about sacrifice. And I would say that discipleship is part of this cross. It's denying yourself, sure, but sacrificing your time, sacrificing your availability, sacrificing some of your knowledge, your wisdom, sacrificing the fact that you've got to give out your number and somebody actually might call you and ask you questions. Being available, right? So go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. It means this, that the disciple becomes a disciple maker. A disciple, because right, that's what he's saying. Go into all the world, make disciples. A disciple becomes a disciple maker. I know this because... I'll tell you a little bit about my story. Um, I wasn't always a Christian. I wasn't always a good, good old Christian boy. Um, I was raised in a broken home. My mom and my dad, they split when I was young. And um, I, I lived with my dad in Providence, Rhode Island sometimes. And then when I wasn't ping-ponged to my mom, who lived in East Providence, Rhode, any Rhode Islanders, I'm in New England. No, because they don't let them out. That's why. You live in Rhode Island, you stay in Rhode Island. I, I escaped at night and moved to Tennessee. This, I'm a byproduct of discipleship, let me put it that way. Um, my guitar player and, and his wife, uh, they came to Christ and kind of ruined all our hopes and dreams of becoming rich and famous rock stars. Um, so, yeah, I got, to, I got into music when I was about 13 years old. Uh, I went to go see Back to the Future with my dad, and that was it. Marty McFly playing uh, Johnny Be Good. I had to have a guitar, and so I begged him for a guitar, and he finally buckled under the pressure brought me to Luca Music and bought me a little uh, black Stratocaster guitar and I just kind of buried myself into lessons. We didn't have cell phones back then or Facebook, so we didn't even have cable. So that was it, that was my entertainment. So for hours and hours and hours, I just tried to learn how to play that thing. And uh, this got me around other guys who played and they listened to darker kind of music and they wore darker clothes. They had, you know, um, they smoked and drank and, and some of them had sex we heard. And so soon, I, I'm 13, I'm looking up to these older guys and wanting to be like them. And so, so on, I, st I started dressing like that, started talking like that, started s smoking and drinking. Nothing cooler than a 13-year-old with a Marlboro, you know, hanging out of his mouth. But that's the life I got caught up into. And so living with my dad, it was tough to get away with stuff because uh, he, he kind of caught everything. And so one night, uh, my buddy and I got uh, some poor sucker in the neighborhood to buy us a six-pack of beer. And we split it behind St. Mary's Church which is the school I was going to. So we had our little uh, bar outside of the church. And we, I came home, and I, so I, I had to hide the smell of, of, I didn't want to smell like a bar room, and say, hey, Dad, you know. Uh, so I, uh, he lived on the third floor of a three-tenement home, and it was super old and rickety. He still lives in it. Um, and it was filled with stuff on the first and second floor. And so I stashed a change of clothes and some Listerine, and um, I, I thought, well, when I'll come home, I'll just kind of change my clothes and, and, and disguise the smell. And he'll know, he'll, know, uh, he'll be none the wiser. Uh, so I crept up the second floor, got in there, changed my clothes, took my Listerine, came out. And there is my father standing on the landing, peering into my soul. Like, why are you sneaking into the house? And I'll paint a little picture for you. My dad uh, was, uh, is a very strong, burly Italian guy, very hairy man. Uh, he was a Green Beret in the military. And when I say hairy, I mean like he doesn't really need a shirt. Uh, kind of covers him head to toe. Um, very furry fella. Um, 
and so often he didn't need a shirt. Um, so here he is, shirtless, staring me down, um, and pondering, wondering why his 13-year-old son is sneaking around the house late at night. We often got broken into. We lived in the inner city, so he probably was going down there ready for a fight. And he was a little riled up. And then, so I'm trying to like come up with some story I've been drinking. So I said, oh, why am I on the second floor? Why am I sneaking in? Uh, oh, you know, Dad, I remembered the washer and dryer was on the second floor. Tell him that. Okay. Yeah, so the, there's a lot of, you know, house fires these days. I was checking the lint in the dryer. Let's check the lint in the dryer. And he said, uh, let me smell your breath. So I was busted, and he scolded me with his hand, and he brought me down to my friend's house and scolded him with his words because his folks weren't going to scold him. And so I thought, man, I can't, every time I go out drinking, I can't be carried down the street with my shirtless dad to my friend's house. and I can't keep doing this, right? This is unsustainable living. So if I want to live like this, I have to get out. So I uh, packed my stuff one day. He went to work, and I jetted out. And I moved to my mom, uh, who lived 15 minutes away. And I gave her what for for the, last, for the next 10 years. 10 years of my life, I lived like a prodigal son. Wasteful living. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, you name it. If I could get my hands on it, I'd, I'd smoke it, I'd do it, whatever. And I always had a band. And out of high school, we had this band called The Trees. And we got signed to a label called Big Noise Records. And uh, they were showcasing us to RCA Records and Sony Records in New York City and stuff. And we were kind of getting out there. We had a new album that just came out. And everything was kind of um, breaking for us. And we were kind of getting very excited. This is, this is going to be a big break. We had a big uh, showcase coming up. And I got a call uh, weeks before from my guitar player who said, Hey, bro, uh, listen, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And uh, if I'm going to be in this band, well, we need to do two Christian songs now. Give me an ultimatum. I don't know what Christian songs are. I don't even know what he just said. I have a Catholic background, but giving your life to Christ, what do you mean? Okay, that's fine. All right, bro. And so he said, well, listen, I'm going to bring some stuff over because I didn't know any Christian songs. So uh, that next uh, night, he came out to our rehearsal, and he brought this little tape deck with him. And uh, at the end of our rehearsal, he said, he announces, it's, okay, guys, it's, it's time for us to learn our Christian songs. Okay, Dave, what do you got? And he had the most hokey bluegrass stuff. I swear God has a sense of humor. I do this for a living. We do Christian music for a living. And he introduced me to Christian music with a song called I Like the Christian Life. And somebody here actually knows this song. I'm shocked because it's probably from like the 1930s, the Leuven Brothers. And it went like this. I like the Christian life. My buddies left me. When I came to Jesus, they all had better Plans of their own. I like the Christian life. Why would you like that? Your buddies took off. You like that. What are you doing, Dave? So the next song wasn't much better. It was a song called I'm the Pilgrim. And words like Wearsome and Yonder. And, ah, oh, man. So I thought, ah, oh, he's lost his mind. But I don't want to lose my guitar player. So I said, okay, look, Dave, we'll learn the Pilgrim song. That first song's got to go. We're not going to do that one. I don't like that song or the Christian life, for that matter. So it was like, David, you, you want me to like Christianity, right? This is not doing it. So I get what you're doing, but this isn't. Anyway, so this got the conversation going, yeah? And so he starts telling us about Christ and how uh, the Lord changed his heart and changed his life and talking about sin and the cross. And, you know, he's getting a little preachy and annoying. And so I had to let him off my back. And so I said, look, Dave, you know, I believe in God. Like, tell these guys. I believe in God. But it was like, I believe in God. And his wife said to me, well, where's the fruit of that? And now, okay, that's Christianese, right? Where's the fruit of that? But I got it. My life didn't line up with what I was saying. And I certainly didn't believe God in God like David did because something changed this guy. I knew him. I went to school with him. I grew up with him. I, something changed you. And I don't know what it is, but it might be God, but maybe not. But because uh, he was now all of a sudden like kind of bold and assertive where he was kind of shy and meek before. And now he kind of had this like compassion and maybe love for us, which is really kind of wild. And uh, it is just drawing me, you know, drawing me out a little bit. And so this got the conversation going. And so after the uh, one Saturday night, we played I'm a Pilgrim at the Blackstone Bar and Grill 
in Massachusetts. There was actually a bar fight that night. Anyone there that night? You don't have to admit it. Um, yeah, I'm a pilgrim, really. Got him going. Um, I am a pilgrim and a stranger. We didn't do it like that. Anyway, but uh, that night we came back to my house, had a big party. I fell asleep, woke up with a big headache because I had a lot of soda the night before. And uh, David comes to pick me up, and I went to church with him. And I'm thinking church is going to be solemn. I'm thinking Catholic church. It's going to be low-lit incense. Maybe I can just kind of sneak in the back, go to sleep. Um, but he, <laughs> he brings me to this New England uh, Pentecostal church uh, called Grace Chapel, small little Assemblies of God church. And I walked in the back, sat in the back, and I remember the first thing was it wasn't quiet. You know, there wasn't incense and a priest. All this is all me. It was like loud as a band, you know, like, like it was, the band was not as good as your band, trust me. Uh, they were actually pretty bad. I remember thinking that this, these guys are not on time. This is loud and bad. And I don't know these songs. This is really annoying me. Why am I here? Why are they raising their hands? Why is that guy on his face? My, he's got himself into a cult. I've got to get out of here. So as I'm looking for the exit, the Holy Spirit could hold me. And I start crying. That's not cool when you're hanging with your bandmate, you know. So I just sat down. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to pray. And so I sat like this for a while and prayed. But really what I was doing, I was crying because the Lord was sort of washing me from all that filth and junk that had gotten on my life. And I remember feeling filthy and being in this presence of holiness. And I felt like I couldn't get down far enough. Like, I just felt so terribly small and, and, and dirty. And I just remember, like, him putting his arms around me. And I felt as if he was speaking to me now. And then he, he said to me, you'll write songs for me now. And that was overwhelming because, well, I didn't like bluegrass music. And I didn't like this stuff either, but I didn't know what that meant. It was overwhelming, right? And so I went home and I got all these guys out. Hey, get out of my house. And so I wanted to get away from that crazy party lifestyle. I wanted to stop with the heavy drinking and the smoking and all that carousing and stuff. I wanted out of that. I wanted out of that for a long time. But it was my identity in Christ. What am I going to do now? Who am I, right? Because now I had this band. I had all this stuff and this label and all this going on. And now who am I? What am I going to do? And the Lord was calling me out and drawing me out. And over those weeks and months, David and Shelby, my guitar player and his wife, sat with me and they discipled me and they helped me to read the Bible, to pray and, you know, answered all my deep philosophical questions. Like if God made it, hmm? Why can't I smoke it? You know, deep stuff like that. I had other questions too. But, you know, the idea of, of discipleship was they were there with me. They said, come on over here. Sit next to me. Right? They availed themselves to me. And I learned something in that. And so soon, I just quit that band, and everyone was mad. All my buddies left me when I came to Jesus. See, that was prophetic. That's exactly what happened. Oh, I had so many conversations. What are you, like a born-again Christian now? They didn't talk like that because they're from Rhode Island. What are you, like a born-again Christian? Anyway, I, don't even know, I can't even do a Rhode Island accent anymore. It's gone. Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, Lord, Father. That's my Rhode Island accent. So over the weeks and the months that came, I, I finally realized I had to quit that stuff. And uh, so we were trying to be like the Beatles, and so I, I told Paul McCartney i got to quit. And he was like, that's fine. I, can't, I don't, I don't want to be a Christian band. So I'm, I'm like, look, I, that's fine. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I went home after I quit the band, and, I, and I, I knelt before my couch. And I just sat knelt in the dark living room, and I said, Lord, I don't have anything anymore. And if you can use nothing, then here. Like he was like... Oh, no, you don't have any. Like, he's like, yeah, finally, you quit. You know, stop trying to make your own life. And I just sat for days and weeks after that, wondering who I was. But I had this peace in my life for the first time. I was clean. I felt good. I felt the smile of God in my life. 
And then all of a sudden, this little song came. I woke up with it. And I, it, was, it was like, Jesus, who is this man they call Jesus? Who is this man he should teach us? Why have they sent him to me? What has he done? I found it. And I thought, this little melody is like Pilate. Oh, Pilate would sing that. Yeah. Well, maybe this is like a musical. And then like, bam, this crazy musical came. And it happened in like a month. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it because I didn't like musicals. You know, I didn't really, I think I went to one in my life. And so I didn't even know any Christian musicians. It was Rhode Island. Very shallow talent pool. Unlike Dover. And Christian musicians, they're down there somewhere. I mean, I, but they all of a sudden came out of the woodwork. And it was like a miracle that I just found, like, I just bump into them all over the place. And so I'd say, hey, why don't you come help me with this musical? And soon we had, like, a big group of people, big group of young folks. And we would go everywhere. We'd go into parks, go outside, go into high schools because we could, because it was a musical. And we'd evangelize with that. We'd bring the gospel, and we'd see people come to Christ. And then what we would do is we'd say, hey, come on, hang out with us. Come over here, sit next to us. You know, we'll teach you how to pray. We'll teach you that just because God made it doesn't mean you have to smoke it. You know, we'll teach you how to walk this thing out, you know. And we just brought them in. That was Christianity. And I look back on those days, and I think, man, that was like a revival or something that was going on. And we didn't call it that. We were just excited about Christ, you know. And that was Christianity. And I, and I fear sometimes for the church that we get into the, the habit of going to church. When there isn't a command to go to church, sorry, Nate, I'll get out of it. There's a lot of commands to be the church. You know? The privilege that we have of coming to church is that we get to build one another up, that we get to hear the word and grow, that we get to worship together in community and experience God together. But then we take it out of these four walls and we minister the gospel. We bring that message with us, right? In that little musical, we just did it a couple Easter ago uh, for about 8,000 in Spanish and in English. And we saw 400 people come to Christ at that event. And I sat back, hardly had anything to do with it because most of it was in Spanish. And I don't sing in Spanish. I don't even play guitar in Spanish. But it got translated. It was this big Spanish church that did it. And I just watched people come to Christ. I thought, man, Lord, this little thing that you placed on my heart a long time ago, just being faithful with that thing. We developed a 40-day uh, a devotional that went along with it. Dr. Andrew uh, helped with it. And we brought our small groups through it. So now, you know, the music is used as a discipleship tool because everything is a tool now, Right? What has he put in your hands? I just had music. That was my thing, right? But he's given you something. He's given everybody something, right? A heart, a brain, right? Everybody's got something that they can give. So what's yours? Jesus saw these fishermen hanging on the side of Galilee, mending their nets, and they're, you know, doing their thing. Here's the big fish. Here's the small fish. And Jesus walks by and says, hey, you there, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I love this passage because, to me, I see discipleship, a discipleship call in this. This is his call to his first disciples. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Come over here, boys. Sit next to me. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. That first phrase, follow me. If we just take that to ourselves, it just means be available. Christ availed himself to them. Follow me. He was followable. If, that meant if I was going to hang out with him, I was going to become more like God. I was going to become more godlike. He was a master. They knew it. So they were just going to go and, and learn from him. So the question then is, are you available? Are you availing yourself to people are you followable? If I walked around with you for a few months, would I be more like Christ? That's a good question, right? Follow me, and I will make you. And I think this is really where he puts, puts it on the line. He, he commits himself to people. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Now, we say that. can we say that to people? Sure you can. Paul says, be like me as I am like Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. That's just as simple as saying, hey, 
I want to be in your life. I want to help you grow in Christ. I want to make you a disciple. I want to help become your disciple. Make, I want to be there for you, right? I want to disciple you. We can say that. Um, I was in, um, I was in uh, Florida one time. I tell this story. As this guy, I got a call one time. I was a pastor on call. This guy named Keith. Keith called. He said, hey, bro. His shaky voice on the other line of the phone. He's just saying, hey, hey man, I, I got to talk to somebody. I'm in trouble. Um, I gave my life to Christ, and, and I felt like he wanted me to confess something to my wife that I've been doing. And uh, I'm in, he's been with prostitutes. And he had to confess this to his wife. Oh, hey, honey. By the way, <laughs> there's no small thing. She said, okay, I'm going to divorce you. He had a two-year-old son. Didn't know what to do. So now his world is upside down. What am I going to say to this guy? What would you say to him? All right, let me pray for you. Lord, Heavenly Father, help this man's wife to not leave him for being with prostitutes. Amen. All right, bud. Good luck. All right? Anything would feel like a push-off, right? You would just feel like I'm just sending him off. Oh, just come to church or, you know what I mean? Like anything felt like I was just kind of pushing the guy away. When really I needed to connect with him. And I said, look, I meet with these guys on Tuesday nights. Come on out. We'll hang out. He comes out. His eyes were like, you know, the size of the moon. And he was like a man out of Vietnam, you know, just like PTSD. And he's just, he didn't know what to do. He's shocked. His life is totally upside down. And I said to him that night, I said, look, man, I want to disciple you. And he said something shocking to me that always sticks with me. I can still see his face when he says it. He said, really? And I was like, oh, yeah. I, I just, I didn't, I wasn't ready for that kind of response. Because what he was saying to me is he was desperate to have somebody help him, be there for him in his life to walk with him, to be there for him. And then people that I met after that and ongoing, I realized, man, there really is a discipleship deficiency. And those numbers that we showed in the beginning prove it. And you're the disciple makers. You're the answer to all this, right? There are people in your life that if you were to say to them, hey, I want to disciple you, they'll tell you, really? Like it's easier than you think. I'm not even talking about like going on the, and, and witnessing to people and telling them about Jesus for the first time. I'm talking about people who actually like know Christ, who have committed themselves to the Lord maybe for the first time. Or just early young Christians who need you because so many people fall through the cracks. We were at this big church that's at 5,500 people, this big, massive building, whatever. And people would come to the altars, man, and they would just go. And it was annoying. It was really, really bothering me. Because we'd have this, like, see you next Sunday ministry. See you next Sunday, whoever you are, people who just were here. We don't know who you are. We had no systems in place for discipleship. So we decided to start small group discipleship ministry. And so that's kind of where we put a lot of this stuff in, in this book, Go, is, is what we learned in those times of, of how do we make disciples and having these long conversations about disciple making and seeing people come to Christ and then seeing them through a process and enabling you to make that happen. Nate can't possibly disciple everyone in Dover, no matter how charming he may be, right? It's not his job, first of all. He can't. Even Jesus hung out with 12 guys, and one of them was a devil, right? He hung out with 12. 11 made it. He spent three years with them. They watched him. They followed him. They saw how he interacted. They saw how he, he taught. They saw how he dealt with the church folks, how he dealt with the, the sinner types, how he dealt with the, the lame, the maimed, the blind, the hungry. The, you know, they watched him in all sorts of different ways, and they saw how he handled people. And then when it was their turn, they turned it on. It was the Daniel son. It was the, you know, wax on, wax off, right? You remember the karate kid, right? He wasn't just waxing cars. You're not just painting that fence, young man. You're learning to block, right? That's discipleship. They weren't just following him. They were learning by watching. And, you know, we, we're very practical that way. We learn by doing. We're, we're tactile learners. All of us in some way, we're tactile. We learn by doing. You know, yeah, watch you do it. Okay, then let me try it. 
and then you can correct me, and then, you know what I mean? That's how, it, that's how it goes. So follow me, I'll make you fishes of men. This is, you know, David and Shelby, my guitar player and his wife, they were like three months in the Lord when they discipled me. That's not a long time, you know. Um, three months in the Lord is, is like, you know, a few lessons ahead. <laughs> that's what it was. it was. They were like a few lessons ahead of me, and that's really all you need to be. <laughs> Just stay a few lessons ahead of people. You can teach them. You can disciple them. You can do it. Have the love of God in your heart. Have the word of God. And, you know, and honestly, if, we, if they didn't know something, they would say, that's a good question. I don't know. And we had a pastor we can go ask. We have people that we can go ask, right? And I didn't need them to know everything. I just needed them to be there for me. Right? Follow me. I'll make you fishes of men. So here's the question, right? Why don't we go? Why don't we? Because the numbers prove that we're not. Right? Maybe some of you guys are, you know, and I pray that you are, right? Uh, it's a very healthy church. You can smell it, right? We go into a lot of churches, and you can always smell, and oh, something's stinky in here. This unhealth, right? You can smell a healthy church, right? So I want to I wanna add to, to that in saying, like, whatever you're dealing with is probably, and when it comes to discipleship, right, we have these things that we call we call them self-inflicted disqualifiers, which basically means things that you put in your own way. Boundaries and borders and stumbling blocks that you may put in your own way. Why you're not making disciples. And maybe you never really asked yourself the question. But a lot of self-inflicted disqualifiers look like this. They're just, you're too busy, you know, you don't have enough time, you've been there, you've done that, you try to disciple people, you don't have the time, you're too busy, you don't have the time, you're too busy, you don't have the time, right? A lot of it is that, right? Going, though, starts in the heart. It's a heart issue. In Jeremiah, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and decept uh, de desperately wicked. Who can know it? No one. Can you know your own heart? Not really. It's a deep, dark place. We, you know, this hurts past relationships. Parents have hurt you. Past pastors have hurt you, maybe. You know, you've had bad relationships with, with bad husbands, bad wives, bad this, bad that, bad this, bad that. We're, we're, we're all messed up in some ways. We have heart issues, right? But God can give us a new heart. We have a heart condition, but he can give us a new heart. In Ezekiel, it says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, meaning I'll give you a heart that beats compassion. This is a miracle for me. I was 23 when I came to Christ, selfish as can be, totally self-centered. I could not care less for anybody else because I could barely care for myself. I was self-medicating. This was a humongous miracle for me that he actually put a love in my heart for people. You know, that was for me, what the Holy Spirit's work in that way for me was like the, what the phone booth was for Superman. The old Superman, not the new one. I don't know what he, how does the new Superman become Superman? Does he just always walk around in a suit? Now you got a little Clark Kent going on, right? I can see that. You never know. He might be. Here's a Superman with this super love, right? With a superpower. God gives us a superpower called love. And it's the only thing that can change the world. It's the one thing that's attractive to the world is the love of God in us because they don't have it. They know how selfish they really are. And when we commit ourselves, we give our hearts to God on that altar, and we just allow him to transform our heart, it changes us, right? Empowers us to love others and empowers us to go. So I'm going to end with this. Going takes really, right, two things I can see, two things that I constantly have to remind myself, and that's intentionality, intentionality, and surrendering. Intentionality of my mind that says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go, yes, and then surrendering of my heart, because I know how wicked it is, and I know how selfish it is, and I know how deceptively, deceitfully wicked it is. Intentionality of mind, surrendering in our heart. Intentionality looks like this. In Isaiah, 
it, uh, it says that, um, who will go for us? It says, the prophet says, who will go for us? Who shall we send? And I said, here am I. Send me. I wonder who in this room would be willing to say, I'll go. I'll tell. I'll be the guardian. I'll be the messenger. I'll be the one to say, come over here, sit next to me. I'll reach out of my comfort zone. I'll go to my friends. I'll go to my family. I'll go to that person that I know that God's been putting on my heart. I'll go to that person who's sitting in that chair over there in this room. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. That's intentionality. And then surrendering of our hearts. Where we say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Not my selfish will, but your will be done. We constantly have to come into these places of surrender. Because, man, we just, we bury that bone and we want to dig it back up again. And if I know anything about the flesh, it wants to go into its own dark cave and be selfish. And be away from people. And not give of myself. Not give of my time. Not give of my effort. Surrendering takes intention. Even Jesus, you know, guys, right? Talk to the men for a second. Surrendering often looks like uh, retreat, quitting, weakness. When really surrendering is where you find your strength. Even Jesus had to surrender. Even Jesus had to surrender and say, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. That we'd have the heart that would be willing to surrender and say, not my will, but yours be done. Father, put the people in my life that you want me to impact. May I be a person of influence in my world that I go to that I make disciples in, make me a person of influence. Teach me how to love. Teach me, give me a new heart of flesh that beats compassion for your people. Give me a heart that sees the harvest. Give me a heart that is willing to go. Yeah, that's our heart, that's our intention, that's my message for you guys. You know, every one of you have somebody in your life that maybe, some of them, you know, some of you guys are thinking of people right now even. You're saying, yeah, I've got to get, get back with them. They've kind of slipped through the cracks. There have been people who used to sit in these seats that don't sit in these seats anymore. And some of you know them. They slipped through the cracks and you're busy, I know, right? We all are. But somebody's got to take the intention. Somebody's got to call them up. Somebody's got to go to them, right? That's the call of God on your life, on my life. That we would go into our world and make disciples. I'm going to invite my wife up. She's going to sing a song called Surrender. As she does, I wanna, as she comes, I want to pray for you. I want to just take the time just for a little bit, just a few minutes more, to just focus, make an altar wherever you are. I know there are uh, people here that pray. Maybe they could come up now. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if you've never given Christ uh, that place in your heart, I'm going to ask that, you know, today be your day. And there are people here that will pray for you uh, we've all made that commitment. You know, you heard my crazy, weird story, right? We all have stories like that. We've all been humbled by the Holy Spirit, by God, and have come in through repentance. And we just say, Father, forgive me for my sins. I acknowledge that you're Lord in my life. And I want to make the Most High my dwelling place. And when you do that, he will command his messengers charge over you that they would lift you up with their hands, that you won't stumble, 
And we all come through that door of surrender. So if there's something that's been a stumbling block, um, maybe one of those self-inflicted disqualifiers that's been ringing in your mind that you're too busy. Maybe you think you don't know enough. Maybe you didn't go to Bible college. Maybe, no, whatever it is. I want to ask that you surrender it, put it on the altar. I want to ask that today be a day, a great day, that you said, yes, I will go. And if you want to know more, a little bit more about this, we put some practical teaching in this book out there called Go. We built it for you so that it would help the church to kind of get motivated because, you know, this is Sunday, but then Monday comes and you get distracted, right? Easily distracted. So we want to offer that to you. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's, it's 15 bucks. If you don't have it, if it's too much for you, don't worry about it. We say give whatever you can because I feel like if something's free just given to you, you, just, you, you don't value it. But whatever you got, somebody will give us more, you know, down the road. So we just want to avail it to you. We want you to have it because we want you to go into this harvest field and make disciples. You have an amazing church, amazing pastor. Build it. Help him build it. Help him build it. Go. Go. Let's start here with surrender. Father, we thank you, God, for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we all come through this door of surrender. And God, some of us now even are, are struggling with giving up some stuff. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's just straight up sin that, that's just holding us back, making us feel dirty, making us feel unqualified, making us feel like we're distant. We, we can't make disciples because we've got these issues. And Father, I pray now that you'd help them to surrender that thing that today would be a day of surrender, that they would be able to walk out of these doors different. They would be able to walk out of these doors intentional with the love of God in their hearts for others. And so, Father, I pray that you would transform hearts today and minds, that we would go into this harvest field, that there would be a great harvest. In Jesus' name, we surrender to you. We surrender to you. Just take a few minutes wherever you are and let God speak to you. Nobody moving around. Let's don't distract anyone. I'm talking. Let's just surrender to God. Just take a few minutes, sanctify some time in our busy life, our busy, hectic lifestyle. And let's just let God speak to us. And let's surrender once again to his will. And he would call us to go in Jesus' name.